Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Kieran Setia. Kieran is a professor of philosophy at MIT, and he's the author of Midlife, a Philosophical Guide, as well as Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. His writing has also appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Times Literary Supplement, the London Review of Books, the New York Times, Aeon, and the Yale Review. And in this conversation, we talk about the relevance of philosophy to the ongoing project of living a good life. Uh, We discuss the existence of objective moral truths, being happy versus living well, our response to grief, meditation as a remedy for psychological suffering, how to understand the claim that the self is an illusion, the difference between telic and atelic activities, the power of reframing, FOMO, bias toward the future, regret, the asymmetry between pain and pleasure, and other topics. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you find it useful. And now I bring you Kieran Setia. I am here with Kieran Setia. Kieran, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. So, um, we have uh, many shared interests. I, I loved your book, Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. And you, you have a new book, which I just have a PDF of. It's coming out soon. And I've just glanced at that. But I think we can sort of merge the themes in both your books over the course of this conversation. But before we jump in there, maybe you can summarize your background academically and intellectually. What, what kinds of problems and concerns have you focused on? Well, I'm a philosophy professor. I teach at MIT. And my work on the sort of academic side has been about questions about the nature of human agency, human knowledge, and broadly speaking, in ethics, sort of anything related to the problems of how we should live. And then over the last, I guess, five, seven years, I've been doing more outward facing work that uh, we'll, we'll talk about midlife and how it came out of my own experience. But I've been trying to think about how the tools of academic philosophy could be applied to the kinds of problems about how to live that my friends and I seem to be facing and going through, some of which philosophers talk about, many of which they tend not to to spend so much time on. So the midlife crisis is one, and then Mm. in the new book, Life is Hard, Loneliness and Grief and Failure and the kind of challenges that we confront when we're living lives that are inevitably imperfect. Yeah, I've I've often marveled, and I'm not alone in this, in the marveling, at um, the broken connection between philosophy and the project of living well. That used to be the whole point of philosophy, to come up with some vision of life and the world that made securing as durable a possible a form of well-being, you know, we, we could, we'll talk about just, you know, what can be hoped for there. And it, it was just intrinsic to the project of, you know, literally, you know, loving wisdom. And that's the very concept of philosophy. And then it became this far more abstract and arcane discipline where it, it seemed to want to emulate mathematics and science more. And it became a, a you know, following Wittgenstein, a, a really just a kind of language game which viewed everything in terms of 
the, you know, the parsing of concepts. And I just feel like we lost our purchase on something important there. I don't know if you share that, that feeling. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. It, you know, philosophers are often embarrassed by the idea of self-help. But in a way, when you sort of think of the long trajectory of the history of philosophical ethics, the idea that thinking about how to live should make your life better, should enable you to live better, is a very kind of attractive, plausible one. And that makes the line between moral philosophy, ethics, and what would nowadays be thought of as self-help pretty blurry. And they really only start to diverge sort of in the 18th century. You get mm. philosophers who want to sort of pull apart the project of understanding morality uh, or ethics from the project of sort of making people virtuous, making people better. And philosophy, a lot of what philosophers do now is relevant. I mean, it's closely relevant to practical questions about how to live. And some of that people know about through things like effective altruism. So mm -hmm. bits that are bits of philosophy that are directed to the question, what are your obligations to other people? But the relevance of philosophy is much broader than that, but it's very much concealed by the way in which philosophy is sort of now formulated as and structured institutionally as an, an academic discipline. And I kind of wanted to reconnect those two and bring them back into conversation. Yeah. Well, that's what I loved about your book, Midlife, and what I know I will love about Life is Hard. And in, in Midlife, you remind us all of three questions that Kant asked, uh, which are really foundational to the whole project of philosophy, at least the first two. I, I guess I have some concern about the, the third, but the, 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 the questions are, what can I know? What should I do? And what may I hope? And uh, I think you and I both have some caveats to add to the concept of hope. But, um, you know, what can I know? That really is, is all of epistemology. And what should I do? It really crystallizes moral philosophy and, and ethics and, you know, ultimately even meta-ethics. In what sense can things matter? And how do we solve this, this navigation problem of life? In my mind, morality is pretty much always a question of what we should do next, given the space of all possible experience in which we're navigating. And there's a, a deeper question about how any claims we might make about what we should do relate to claims about what is true and what, what is knowable. How do you think about just the grounding of, of moral truth in a larger set of truth claims, I mean, the, 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 the central problems of, of meta-ethics. Do you spend much time thinking about that? Yeah, so I, I do. And I, I tend to be sort of sympathetic to the idea that there, there are objective ethical truths. I mean, there's various kinds of lines that get drawn here that I think, drawing which sort of, I think, played a role in the divorce between, say, philosophical ethics and self-help, like drawing a line between morality as concerned with our obligations to others, and then ethics as concerned with sort of how we should live more broadly. Those two, I think, are sort of interconnected in ways that make them hard to separate. And similarly, you sort of took, mentioned meta-ethics, and there was a kind of period in mid-20th century moral philosophy where a lot of philosophers wanted to, to do something, say something about ethics, sort of meta-ethics, in a way that didn't really engage with the question how to live. They wanted to separate the question of the nature of morality from practical questions about what, what the ethical standards were. And I think there's a kind of tendency in recent moral philosophy ethics that I think is right to blur those lines and to suggest that we can't really draw those distinctions. And I think that 
that sort of blurring of lines also applies to the kinds of questions about objectivity that you're raising. So on the one hand, you know, there's a lot of moral disagreement, there's a lot of disagreement in ethics. And when we try to engage in ethical arguments, we often sort of come to loggerheads with other people. And it seems like there's a kind of question about how we could know the answer or whether there are really objective answers. And that can seem like a challenge to the idea of objective ethical truth. On the other hand, when you think about questions about what we know or what the standards of scientific rationality are, one lesson of thinking about sort of determined conspiracy theorists or science deniers mm. is that if you insist on rejecting any premise that could be used to dislodge your, your view, you can maintain consistency at the cost of an increasingly warped but internally coherent perspective on how the world is mm. sort of scientifically. And so I think these problems about you know, how do you actually persuade people and how does our failure to persuade people, what, what significance does that have for the idea of objective knowledge and objective truth are, are much broader than ethics. And I think in both cases, the right response is to say something like, well, you know, dialectical efficacy, like being able to actually persuade people is one thing. But the fact that you can't persuade someone who's a conspiracy theorist or a committed flat earther mm -hmm. and w will say anything it takes to, to avoid internal inconsistency, that shouldn't make us think that that's a legitimate view. It's still an unjustified response to the evidence, even if it can be made strictly logically compatible with the evidence. And in the same way in ethics, I think we shouldn't be dissuaded from the idea that there really are objective, knowable answers to questions about how we should live by the fact that we find ourselves sometimes faced with intractable ethical disagreements. That's not to say that there aren't differences between the case of science and ethics. I think a kind of pluralism about the variety of different good ways to live is appropriate in ethics, and mm. maybe that kind of pluralism doesn't have the same role to play in our thinking about science. But I think that the sort of questions of, you know, how do we know, what do I know, and what should I do are sort of deeply entangled. And I don't think that there's a sort of, it's very hard to explain why one should be skeptical about objective ethical truth in a way that doesn't just eat up the whole idea of objective rationality altogether. Well, you just seem to have argued for the thesis of my book, The Moral Landscape, in a uh, wonderfully concise way. I don't know if you've seen that book or I heard do know the book. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, obviously I agree with everything you just said. You, you, you made a point which I make there, but you, you sort of made it from the other side, which I find um, pretty illuminating. I mean, so the, the complaint I've often lodged is that scientists and philosophers do something different. They, they, they do something with the diversity of opinion on moral topics that they don't do with diversity of opinion on any other topic, which is to say they conclude from the mere existence of disagreement that there is no ground truth to be known, right? So the fact that someone can show up at your morality conference and say, well, I happen to like the morality of the Taliban. What are you guys going to do with that? Well, basically, the, the conference just dissolves at that point because people begin to say, well, clearly, you know, it's all just made up. It's all cultural convention. There's no, there can be no objective or universal claims about good and evil or right and wrong because we've got the Taliban over there doing, you know, cutting people's heads off at, at halftime of their soccer games. And, that's, and they tell us that's how they want to live. What are we going to do? But my point has always been, if you ask the Taliban about physics or epidemiology, you're not going to get a lot of good sense either, right? The fact that they have opinions on those topics 
is never read by experts in those fields as evidence of anything other than their ignorance, right? And so the idea that you can find a, an island of people who are living in some starkly awful way by our lights shouldn't convince you, uh, you know, on its face that they have e- an equal claim to having thought through the problem of, you know, what is good, what is right, you know, what, what is the moral structure, you know, if there is one in human affairs or in the larger affairs of conscious creatures, and that, you know, they, that their language game needs to be taken seriously the way the language games of our experts do. And so it's just the fact that we just sort of throw out the rule book of what it would mean to just try to push the conversation further into persuasion and to also recognize that in every other sphere of, of life, there are people who are unpersuadable because there are people who, you know, as you say, they're, they're committed to some form of dogmatism that's causing them to just change the rules of conversation on their side so as to be immune to any stream of evidence or argument that would destabilize their worldview. We don't read into that when, you know, when we're talking to young earth creationists. We just, you know, we don't view that as a real challenge to our geology or astronomy or paleontology or anything else. And yet that's not the, not the feeling you get when talking about questions of right and wrong and good and evil among academics generally. I think that's exactly right. I mean, there's this phenomenon or a kind of idea that comes out of 20th century philosophy of science, mid-20th century philosophy of science of the underdetermination of theory by data. The idea is, if you're willing to adjust your auxiliary hypotheses, you can always avoid accepting any theory that seems to be supported by the data by reinterpreting how exactly the observations were related to theory or how they were gathered or disputing the the reliability of such and such instrument. And the, the standard response, not the only response in philosophy of science, is to say, well, yeah, there's more to scientific rationality than just bear consistency with the evidence. Like just not contradicting the evidence is not all there is to coming up with the best, most justified, most illuminating, most explanatory, best theories. And I think it's a puzzle to which there are kind of interesting historical answers why we don't take the same view in ethics of saying, well, yeah, someone can hold a consistent, internally coherent, but abhorrent moral view, an abhorrent view in ethics, that doesn't mean that there's no fact of the matter or that there's no justification. What it means is, well, there's more to ethical rationality, sort of thinking well about ethics than just not contradicting yourself. And put that way, it really shouldn't be that surprising that mere consistency is not all there is to you know, ethical virtue in one's thinking about ethics itself. So I think you know, the degree of disagreement historically and socially is may be different, and that maybe invites people to, to suppose that there's some dramatic contrast between ethics and science, but it's really a difference of degree. And you know, as conspiracy theorists become more prevalent, the differences of degree may start to diminish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the problem of persuading people about ordinary facts, I mean, just you know, journalistic facts at this point, has become fairly excruciating. So the, the, the idea that it's remains difficult to persuade people about divergent moral facts. That's somehow no longer surprising. We can't even agree about what should be on the front page of a newspaper at this point. But uh, that 
concern notwithstanding, let's plunge in. Uh, I think a, a good place to start is the distinction you make between being happy and living well. How do you think about those two concepts? Yeah, so I think this is this is sort of a, a kind of distinction that gets drawn in, in various ways in, in philosophy, but also in ordinary life. So I think it, it, one way to sort of see the contrast between being happy and living well and sort of asking yourself, you know, what is the object of self-help? Am I, is the goal to be happy or to live well? Is to think about either there are sort of abstract, wild philosophical thought experiments like people plugged into simulation machines in which nothing they're experiencing is real. They're actually completely alone. Everyone they seem to be interacting with is fake. Nothing that they think they're doing or almost nothing are they really doing. Many people have the thought, well, that is not a life I want for people I love. That's not, that's not sort of a good human life. That's barely living at all. But of course, the person who's in that situation of, of deception and, and illusion could feel incredibly happy. They feel great. In term, if we think of happiness as the kind of subjective state of mood or satisfaction, they have it. And what that suggests is, yeah, there's more to living well than happiness. It's not that we should not care about happiness or strive to be unhappy, but that's not really the goal of life. The goal is to live well. And that sometimes involves unhappiness and the unhappiness that comes with confronting reality. So there's also, as well as these wild thought experiments, I think it's something that people are very vividly confronted with when they think about grief, where Mm. the idea that, that the pain of grief and the unhappiness of grief and the sadness of grief among the other complex array of emotions that, that grief involves, the idea that somehow, well, it would just be better if we could get rid of that, that just doesn't seem right. This, the relationship between the pain and suffering of grief and living well is much more complicated than that. And in, I think that's a more general phenomenon, that the relationship between negative emotions, negative feelings, and living well doesn't always make your life worse. In fact, it's very important to living well to recognize when things are bad, to sort of to live in the world as it is, not the world as you wish it would be. And so I think it's very important to sort of frame the, the philosophical project of ethics and the self-help project in terms of living well primarily and happiness only secondarily. And, and one thing that does is to make clear that the boundaries between oneself and others are, are much more porous. So when you start to think about living well, part of living well is living as you should. And the question of how should I live, well, it doesn't immediately tell you how you should care about other people, but invites you to ask, well, if I'm going to live as I should, how should I integrate the rights and needs of other people into my life? And if you were just thinking about happiness, it might seem like, well, any connection between happiness and caring about other people is contingent. And often caring about other people makes you vulnerable to unhappiness. But once you think, no, the goal is not just to feel happy, it's to actually live a good life, you start to sort of break down the boundaries between what we might think of as self-interest and what we might think of as morality. And I think that's a useful way of sort of reframing what the project of self-help might look like if it was inspired by a kind of philosophical approach to ethics. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot in what you just said. There's so many intersecting questions and problems to sort out. I mean, so one point you made about uh, grief, which I find really interesting, and I think it's a certain point it is going to be a an actionable use case for all of us that will pose some interesting psychological and ethical challenges. I mean, the way I've put it elsewhere, I think I, 
It might have been in the moral landscape. It certainly was in some things I said while talking about that book. I just I asked people to imagine what it's going to be like when we develop, if we develop, as seems pretty likely, a real cure for grief and bereavement, right? So let's just say we have a grief pill that you could take and, and you know, within an hour, you will no longer feel sad about that thing you've been completely brokenhearted over, whether it's the death of a loved one or the, the loss of a relationship or pick your poison there. If we had a cure for grief, the question immediately arises, you know, whether to take it ever and if to take it, uh, how long do you wait, right? And clearly it seems like some kind of awful norm violation and even a, a break of trust with the person we ostensibly love if, while their body is still warm, we pop the pill and, you know, 45 minutes later, we're out in, a, in an arcade playing uh, video games, uh, to, to date myself with an anachronistic re- reference. But it's like it's the idea that the love of your life dies and that you would want to take a pill which nullified your bereavement immediately, that somehow seems in- incompatible with love itself, uh, of course, you, you, it, some you know, real experience of grief seems appropriate and desirable. But then the question is, is there any point where grief itself becomes maladaptive and no longer a sign of just how important that person was to you, but also a sign of a, you know, like a failure of resilience and a failure to thrive and a failure to live in precisely the way your your loved one would want you to live after they're gone, right? So, like, at what point? At some point, you could imagine a grief pill really could be a a necessary intervention for someone whose life has just un, unraveled under the pressure of bereavement. So, I, there's a half a dozen other things that that occurred to me as you were talking, but maybe we can take that case. Do you have any thoughts about sure. that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a fascinating thought experiment. I mean, in in fact, there's already a kind of natural experiment that that prompts anxieties of the kind you're describing. So that the, the empirical work on grief suggests that most people tend to be quite resilient, even in the face of loved ones that they were deeply attached to. And often within you know, six months, mm. their lives are almost back to normal. And that actually occasions a lot of discomfort and anxiety, the sort of sense that uh, there's something, something has gone wrong with one's attachment given how rapidly it's possible to recover. So even without the grief pill, we sort of have a a kind of emotional immune system that restores us to equilibrium much faster than many of us expect, and in fact, much faster than many of us are comfortable with. Mm. And when you try to think through why that is, I mean, part of the answer seems leads to another puzzle you raised about how long. So part of the answer seems to be, well, when you think, what am I grieving for? Well, there's the loss of the relationship. There's how bad it was for the person who died, the life that they could have had. But there's also just a kind of recognition of the sheer loss of, of life. And grief is, is a kind of rational response to that. Like in, in the same way as we have reasons for other emotions, like anger is a respo- response to a, th- a sort of perceived insult, or fear is a response to danger or threat. Grief seems to be a kind of the reason for it is a certain kind of loss. And the puzzle is well, actually, that, that's what starts to answer the question why we shouldn't take the pill. The thought is, if we didn't grieve in response to the loss of someone we love, 
we wouldn't be taking in reality. This goes back to the contrast between being happy and living well. We want to take in reality. And in reality, we should feel grief. We should respond in a way that acknowledges the, the terribleness of that loss. But then the puzzle is, hold on, if the reason for grief is just that my loved one is dead, that's not going to change. I mean, the, the reason mm -hmm. that just stays the same, and it stays the same forever. So now we face the question, the puzzle is less why should we grieve or whether we should grieve, but how can we ever justifiably stop grieving? And there's a real puzzle there. I mean, it, you know, it, hmm. when you try to describe how the situation has changed later, you think to yourself, it's true, they died a while ago, and I've grieved for a while. But those things all seem irrelevant to the scale of the loss. Like the, the, those things don't make it any, don't sort of diminish their loss in having died. So how can they make it rational to stop grieving? And I think this is, this is kind of a puzzle I talk about in, in the chapter on grief in, in Life is Hard. I think this is where really what's happening is that our emotions respond to reasons. And this is a case where if we just look at the object of the emotion and try to proportion our emotional response to changes in it, we'll find that there's just a kind of indeterminacy. We don't know. It does, there's, no, there's nothing in the object of grief that tells you how long to grieve for. And this is, I think, one reason why rituals of grieving, sort of practices of mourning, which are not rationally mandated, they take various cultural forms, are so important because what they do is allow you to sort of grab onto something to sort of guide and shape the process of grieving in a way that enables you to at least, you know, in, in practice, get through this sense of the arbitrariness of, mm. of grieving for a certain length or or others. And, and, you know, often what they have is, is sort of distinctive temporal shapes. So like you sit shiver for seven days, or, you know, in, in ancient Roman customs, there were sort of, you know, guidelines for how many months you should mourn for a child or a wife, or, you know, what they do is precisely try to, to regulate something that if we just look at the object of grief would seem unregulable. And I, I think that is a kind of a deep sort of, feature of the nature of grief and the way in which it, it responds to, to, to loss. So yeah, I think we can sort of answer the question, what would we lose if we took the grief pill by saying, well, we wouldn't be responding to reality the way we should. And then we face this problem, okay, how, how can we ever justifiably stop recognizing that mm. loss for what it is? And we, we sort of rely on what are to some extent conventional arbitrary social practices to help us do that. Yeah, that's all. Very interesting and useful. Although there's there's a mystery on the other side of the continuum here, which is that one could ask how one ever justifiably starts grieving, in the sense that, and this has a direct connection to you know meditation and and mindfulness and, and the, just the nature of consciousness. That you know, I, I know you know that's an interest of mine, because I mean, just for instance, take my present circumstance, right? You know, I'm recording this conversation with you. I'm alone which is to say that no one I love is present in my studio now, they're never going to be more absent for me than they are now, right? My wife and kids are, I, I, you know, I know them to still exist. I have no reason to be bereaved. But the truth is, I also know that I am totally fine in their absence, right? So the question is, how do I ever become someone who is not fine? in their absence. And not only not fine, but how does their absence become 
synonymous with really the ruination of my well-being for whatever half-life that suffering has for me, you know, in the case of, you know, everyone I love dying. And, you know, it's, it seems like a, perhaps a callous question, or at least a um, bizarre one, but in terms of the mechanics of psychological suffering, it's a very real one, because the way you, the way we suffer is to think about the reasons we have to suffer in this case. It is a kind of abstraction. I mean, the, the thought, I will never see her again, meets out its punishment to you in the act of identifying with it. And that's why meditation promises to be a, a truly generic remedy for psychological suffering, because it's, it's, you know, it's in being able to break the spell of thought that one can recognize that consciousness is, if only for that next moment, free of the implications of thought. And I actually, I, I know from reading Midlife, you have some concerns about the, you know, what's considered the center of the bullseye here, that the illusoriness of the self, and, and perhaps we'll, we'll get there. I, I'd love to speak with you about that. But the conundrum you posed about how it ever becomes reasonable to stop grieving, I do think is actually mirrored on the other side by this property of the mind. How is it that it becomes so reasonable to start grieving when in this moment, I know that and you know, and any listener must know, that it's totally possible to not only endure the next moment of, being, of solitude, you can thrive in this next moment of solitude. And, and how does that fundamentally change ever? That's really, that is very interesting. I mean, I think it relates to a, to a distinction I want to draw between different objects of grief and sort of the, the plurality of things that grief attaches to. So a distinction I think is useful is between relational grief or grief about the end of a relationship and grief for the sake of the one who's died. Mm -hmm. And they come apart. So, it's, you know, when you have a terrible breakup and the person hasn't died, nevertheless, there's something like grief, the, 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 the sort of devastation of rejection and loss of a relationship. And then when someone you love dies, there's both. You both have this the yeah. phenomenon that the relationship is, is now... I think not really ended, but it changed. It's ruptured and changed in a dramatic way. And then you have, I think, also grief for the, their sake. And I think part of what you're pointing to is that if we focus on relational grief, the kind of relationship, you think, well, insofar as my relationship, I was capable of being happy in my relationship with someone in their absence. All I have to do to get through grief is more of that. Mm. And so, yeah, why why shouldn't I just? sort of stay in, in the, the mode of, of being fine in their absence. And I think there's an, that is a very interesting puzzle, but I think it, it deals with one side of grief, the sort of relational side, the relationship-focused part about, you know, I'll never see them again, I'll never interact with them again. And I think there is also a dimension of grief that is not in that way, it's not that relational grief is self-regarding, but it, it, is, it involves you as one of the two you know, sides of the relationship. I think there's also grief that is just not relational. It's just about the death of someone else. Mm. And there, I think, the, the issue of how you're, you could survive their absence doesn't seem to offer consolation. The thought is, it's just a fact that they are dead. And the appropriate sort of emotional response to the enormity of that fact is to grieve, to, to, to go to begin this sort of complicated, difficult emotional process. And I think, I think that kind of 
sort of outward looking for the sake of them grief, it's not clear to me that it's it's subject to the same therapy you just gave. I think the therapy for that would have to be something much more radical, which would point us towards the non-existence of the self and sort of more more radical Buddhist ideas where the thought would be, you know, if we could fully take in that we don't really exist and no one we're attached to really exists in the way we think they do, if that was really true and we could really take it in, then the thought might be, well, the kind of loss that attachment would bring, this sort of outward-looking loss where the value of something irreplaceable is just gone and you're, you're sort of devastated by that, it would be sort of answered by sort of denying that we really existed in the kind of way that would make us fit objects of that kind of attachment. I mean, th- there are many puzzles about this we could talk about. I and mean, one puzzle for me is that it's never been clear to me really why the sort of revelation of no self isn't like sort of discovering that everyone you know and love, including you, is already dead. I mean, it's itself a kind of devastating discovery. And in fact, there's this idea of mindfulness meditation as a kind of therapy that is stress-reducing, the sort of empirical literature on that that's sort of divorced from its, the kind of insights that Buddhist mindfulness meditation is supposed to bring us to. But there are sort of aspects of the Buddhist tradition in which meditation of this kind is not really stress reduction. It's a form of stress induction. Like the process is supposed to be one of mm. confronting something very, very difficult. Like the non existence of yourself and those you love is a kind of devastating thing to confront. What's true is that once you've confronted it, you come out on the other side and you've, as it were, already pre processed the grief. You're through, you're, th- you're as it were, through to the other side of grief. And that sort of makes sense to me. What what I feel like might be having it both ways is a kind of picture of mindfulness meditation on which both the process, the process itself involves stress reduction and the outcome involves a kind of equanimity. I, th- I feel like that is the thing that it, I find it harder to make, make sense of. Mm. Okay, yeah, so maybe we'll deal with it now. Yeah, I think there's some confusion about what is meant by no self in Buddhism or really in any contemplative tradition, certainly any of the, the Indian contemplative traditions that you know, spread east and, and north. So this is now encompassing all variants of Buddhism, including Vajrayana and also Indian teachings like Advaita Vedanta. You know, not to say that the adherents of all those traditions think they're all teaching precisely the same thing, but at their core, I think there is a the same insight uh, at the end of the day that is being described and entangled with you know various forms of you know, religious belief and dogmatism, and it's more or less mingled with with helpful or harmful concepts to varying degrees in in these various traditions. But the core insight is that well, first we can mean many different things by the term self and not all of them are illusory. So it's not the claim that people are illusions or that you can't say anything coherent about the biographical or psychological continuity of a person, right? I mean, it's not mysterious that I wake up today as me and not as you in a different house, in a different life, etc. I mean, that's not, that's not a puzzle that anyone is trying to solve. And I do think there are very interesting puzzles around identity, you know, a la Derek Parfit. But the real insight here and the illusion that is cut through, and again, it's cut through not merely conceptually, but experientially, is 
the apparent default condition of feeling like there's a subject in the center of experience. Most people don't merely feel identical to experience. They feel like they're having an experience. They feel like they're appropriating their experience from some point, very likely in their heads, that is just the witness, the thinker of thoughts, the guider of attention, the, the willer of will, the, free will the, the guy in the boat who has free will, who can decide what to think and do next. That's the default state for more or less everybody, as far as I can tell. And it's a peculiar point of view, as commonplace as it is, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It certainly doesn't make biological sense. It's not the same thing as feeling identical to your body, because People, again, don't feel identical to their bodies. They feel like they're subjects who have bodies to a large degree. I mean, they feel this this kind of a Cartesian dualism here that is uh, intuitive for people. And this is, I think, my my friend Paul Bloom has said that people are are common sense dualists. And I I think that's true. And that, that does link up with many beliefs about the divorceability of mind from brain and you know, the immortality of the soul and all the rest. I mean, it seems somehow intuitive that your mind must be something other than what the brain is doing. And uh, it, you know, it may in fact be, you know, I'm not actually, I'm somewhat agnostic as to how consciousness is arising in this universe. And it's, you know, I take the hard problem of consciousness seriously. That's a separate question. But as a matter of experience, there's this feeling that I'm a subject behind my face, in some cases, certainly under conditions of being embarrassed or you're being suddenly made the object of other people's attention, I can almost feel like I'm wearing my face as a mask, right? I mean, you think of what it's like to feel acutely self-conscious and to be blushing, say, in front of somebody. You know, you're at at odds with your own face. And so where the hell are you in this situation? You're the subject who's thinking. And so it's that point of view who we, we, we represent. So now this is sort of the, the totality of conscious experience here. We represent the world. So we have the deliverances of our senses. We, we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. And so there's a, the full set of our, our perceptions. And there's, there's more to it than that. There's proprioception and everything else you can be consciously aware of, your body in space. So there's the world. And you, then you represent your body in the world. But again, from the point of view of the subject, your body is a kind of object in the world. It's out there to some degree, and you're in, you're in it. And you, so then there's this final representation of being a subject internal to the body that is directing attention, thinking thoughts, willing its will, and vulnerable to the, the warp and woof of, of life. So it's that final representation of the subject that is the illusion. And to put this in neurological terms, you know, this is, let's just say for the sake of argument, that all of this is just, you know, neurophysiological events in the brain and delivering these, these representations. It is plausible, or at least should be plausible, that any one of these processes can be interrupted, right? So you can cease to faithfully or coherently represent a world, right? You can suddenly, you know, go blind. You know, you can suddenly not be able to name living things, but still be able to name tools. You, you can suddenly not be able to perceive motion or location. You know, those things break apart. All kinds of things can be disrupted, for worse, certainly. But what these contemplative traditions have recognized is that certain things can be disrupted or brought to a halt for the better, 
right? And the thing that can, that really does really can interrupt the usual cascade of of mediocrity and suffering, psychologically speaking, is this representation of self as subject in the middle of experience. It, it is a kind of again. I realize I've been bloviating for quite some time here, <laughs> giving you a lot, and there's much more to say on this. But the you can represent the world, and you can represent your body in the world, and you can cease to represent a subject internal to the body, or cease to, const- I should say, construct a subject internal to the body. And what remains in that case is a sense that the mind is much vaster than it was a moment ago, because it's no longer confined to the sense that there's this central thinker of thoughts. There's the, the recognition that thoughts simply arise all by themselves, just the way sounds do, right? There's no, no one is authoring your thoughts. You certainly aren't. In fact, the sense that you are is yet is what it feels like to be identified with this next spontaneously arising thought. So you lose the sense that, that you're on the edge of your life. You're on the edge of the world, sort of looking over your own shoulder, appropriating experience. And what you can feel, you know, very vividly, again, this is not a new way of thinking about yourself in the world. This is a, a ceasing to identify with thought. What you can feel is a real unity. And again, there, there's fine print here in whether we want to talk about this as unity or as emptiness. My preferred formulation here is non-duality. A non-duality of subject and object such that there really is just experience. Right Again, I'm not making any metaphysical claims about how this relates to matter or the universe, but as a matter of experience, you can feel identical to experience itself, right? You're not having an experience. You're not on the edge of the river watching things go by. You are the river. And that solves a very, very wide class of problems, psychologically speaking, with respect to suffering. So it does land in a surprising kind of equanimity and even eudaimonia that um, may seem counterintuitive in the midst of the cacophony of ordinary life. But it's there to be found. But again, it's not, it's not the negation of personhood. It's not, it doesn't introduce all kinds of conundrums about how am I me and not you. It's just a recognition that as a matter of experience, there is just experience. And, and the feeling that there's an experiencer is yet more experience, right? So there's like you, if you drop back, there is just everything in its own place. Anyway, so I've given you, gave you a lot there, but that's my attempt to perform an exorcism on the concept of, <laughs> of no self that you, you seem to be working with. Well, I, I mean, I, I think there's something deeply right about the line of thought you're, you're pushing. I, I, what I find hard to get in, in view and sort of still struggle with is this sort of sense that there are more or less radical versions of some of the central claims. And the less radical ones, I sort of see the force of. But I think the, the more radical ones are often seem to me be, to be required to kind of do the work that people in this tradition want the idea of no self to do. So here's two, here's two, two ways that comes out. So one is on the, on the sort of idea that I, when I'm in, having experiences, I'm sort of present, it, it's as if there's a subject of them. And there's a kind of modest thought that I think is right, which is there's nothing in my experience. My experience sort of leaves open what exactly that subject is. It doesn't tell me that I'm a 
human organism. It's mm. it's from the point of view of experience, it's just a it's not clear what I am. But then there's a more radical claim which people sometimes make that it's part of the content of experience that I'm not sort of that that there's something in the content mm. of experience that positively supports a kind of Cartesian dualism, a kind of idea of something distinct from anything physical. And I think the modest idea is right, but I don't think I think the stronger idea is is one I'm not really convinced by, and I don't think it follows from the more modest idea. And I think you get the same thing on the ethical side. So when you think about the idea of sort of my deep attachment to myself, the kind of deep attachment to myself that underlies my paralyzing fear of death, like the the electric sense of terror that I have when I think about Mm. dying, I think, well, do the kinds of ideas that you get in this tradition really address that? And insofar as the idea is, well, there's a kind of illusion of a, a certain kind of unity of consciousness that uh, or of a certain kind of subject distinct from anything material that underlies experience. And there really is no such immaterial subject of experience, some kind of transcendental subject. There's no such thing. I think, well, maybe that's right. On the other hand, I'm not convinced that my, my fear of death is either sort of psychologically or rationally bound up with that idea. In other words, I, I'm not, not sort of convinced that the rationality of this sort of response to death really depends on ideas of subjecthood of that kind. And I think grief is one way to, to sort of bring that out. So wh- I think that the kind of grief response to the lo- loss of someone you love, the sort of that someone you love is gone, I think it's a perfectly appropriate response to that to be stricken with grief. I think mm. you should be. And if you weren't, you'd really be missing something. But in that case, I think it's much clearer that metaphysical thoughts about their subjecthood are not really part of what's justifying or making sense of the grief response. I, I, my views about whether my wife is a Cartesian subject seem kind of irrelevant to my sense of like deep loss at the thought that she dies. And I think if it makes sense to grieve profoundly the loss of people you love in a way that is independent of any sort of metaphysical claims about their subjectivity, then why wouldn't it be equally appropriate to sort of grieve your own death in, in advance, as it were, to sort of respond with the same kind of shock and, and despair and dismay to the idea of one's own death in a way that's independent of, this, of these kind of metaphysical questions about subjectivity. I mean, maybe a, a sort of more a compromised view would be something like, maybe there are aspects of our experience, of our emotional life that do depend on sort of inflated ideas about subjecthood and that would be treated by deflating those ideas or showing them to be illusions. But I'm not convinced that's true of all of the troubling aspects of our emotional life. So I'm sort of thinking some of the kind of terrors and trauma we experience are sort of Mm. independent of this particular kind of metaphysical question about subjects. And if there's any treatment for them, it's going to be something else. Yeah, okay. So once again, there's a lot there. Each note of this conversation seems to um promise uh, yet another hour of conversation we could have had about the last two minutes of what you just said. So it's really, this is, uh, I hope you have 12 hours for this, uh, for this <laughs> sure. recording. Um, so yeah, so the way in which metaphysical claims interact with happiness and suffering is pretty interesting here. But I, just to be clear, I, I was not making any metaphysical claims about the illusoriness of the self. I mean, it's purely an experiential, you know, phenomenological claim I was making. So we can bracket the 
what we believe to be true about consciousness and the brain and you know what happens after death like that can be anything may or may not be true about that and it doesn't change the experiential character of what i'm claiming but then the question is how how could one's metaphysical beliefs change the character of one's experience i would argue it's always a matter of thinking about what is true right so i mean one of the things that is so galling about death is it seems somehow impossible that we or anyone we love could cease to exist right from one moment to the next it just seems you know how is that the situation we're in right i mean how is life such a thing that you know the mere interruption of blood flow for the requisite time ends this world of experience for this person we know and love and you know or whether that's someone close to us or ourselves it seems impossible to understand somehow and if we have beliefs that ameliorate that discomfort it's very easy to see that they make a difference right so if you believe that the person you love is not only not really dead they're they're suddenly and magically transported to a much better place and you'll see them again in the blink of an eye when you die and you'll you'll enjoy eternity together in paradise well it's very easy to see that that's a consoling vision of life and really makes a difference right i mean that is the, you know grief doesn't make any sense in the context of of a real belief of that sort right i mean no more so than the notion that i'm going to you know i'll be meeting my family uh, you know for a, a wonderful you know caribbean vacation next week should cause me to grieve right it's better than that but then the question is how does one feel the goodness of that promise and how does it make a difference again i would say it is the mechanism by which that occurs is to be thinking and it really in each moment to not really know that you're thinking and which is to say to be spending the cash value of each one of those thoughts by identifying with it right but the feel the good feels of the thoughts about paradise are delivered to a mind that isn't recognizing thoughts to be this diaphanous cascade of you know almost nothing in each moment and there is something you know conversely there is something about breaking the spell of thought that does liberate you from the usual way in which you you know your suffering is meted out to you because it is it is also in thinking about the mystery like if let's say you don't believe anything with much conviction about the afterlife and that you're just left with the the raw mystery of what the hell happened you know like where is this person i love now and if nowhere how do i think about that if all you have moment to moment is thought you really are a hostage the analogy I've I've drawn before is that in the ordinary course of events it's like you know the most boring person in the world walks through the front door of our house and when will not stop talking and follows us from room to room for most people for their entire lives right and and occasionally this person will say something really amusing or really consoling but mostly it's just noise and rather often it's really painful noise it's unpleasant noise and what meditation promises is is an alternative to that not in stopping the conversation but in recognizing the larger space in which it's occurring probably a better analogy just experientially is 
in the difference between dreaming and not knowing you're dreaming, right? Being a mere captive of whatever that dream is, as beautiful as it might be or as horrible as it might be, that's your world for the, you know, you've completely lost a purchase on, on your real situation. You know, you know, you certainly don't, you're not aware you're sleeping and safely in bed. No, you're being pursued by some maniac or you're, you're in a different circumstance and you're, you do not have your wits about you and it has whatever emotional import it has. There are things that can happen there that really do transform your experience. I mean, one is you could have a lucid dream. You could suddenly recognize you're dreaming, and yet the dream persists. That is a, I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but that is certainly an experience that is on the menu to be had. And that does change something, right? It it doesn't change everything because the dream persists, but it really does, it gives you a degree of freedom there, which is palpable. If only for a few moments. I mean, it's very common to just get lulled back into dreaming again there. But what's even more common is to just wake up from the dream entirely. And we all have that experience every morning. And the transition there from dreaming to waking, it's an incredibly stark difference. And it is the difference of, in a very real sense, no longer having the problem you thought you had. Whatever was going on there, you know, good or bad, truly evaporates. And there's absolutely no motive to go back into the dream to solve that particular problem, right? You don't have to go back into the dream to figure out how to protect yourself from the person who was threatening you. No, the, the whole thing evaporated. There is an analogous process every time you recognize, really recognize a thought for what it is, right? The thought, I'll never see her again, that is a really, really bad dream is certainly in, in the midst of bereavement or in, in the, you know, the, at the peak anguish of a breakup of a relationship, but it really is possible. There is a place to stand from which it unravels just like a dream. And, and then that, that unraveling itself becomes a practice, right? A, just the recognition of thought. That, that's where the relief, and when you're talking about the, the Deep claims of you know soteriology, the the claims of you know what it might be like to really wake up and not suffer in the usual ways. It's at that point. It's in truly breaking the spell of thought, such that you recognize that the consciousness that's aware of sorrow is the same as the consciousness that's aware of joy, and thoughts don't actually have a deep purchase on it. Now we you might have a lot of concerns about just what what sort of life such a person might live, and you know are they are they somehow you know rendered imbecilic and unethical as a result of this kind of insight? But it's at that point, and so it does. The question is how deep does all that run, and what you know, and and how perfectly could one accomplish that project? And I, and I have my own questions about that. But as far as having intermittent experiences of you know real clarity on that point that really is available to anyone who wants to look into it you know this is an objective claim about the mechanics of subjective suffering it's just it is there you know thoughts arise and they pass away and there is no thinker authoring them that is the claim of something that's there on the landscape of mind to be experienced I mean, I th- I th- that's really interesting i mean i think the the issue you raised at the end is very getting close to the kind of sort of reaction I have and the kind of puzzles I have about this idea. I mean, in a way, you could connect it back to the grief pill thought experiment and mm-hmm. the question, 
you know, would I, would I take the grief pill? So if someone said to me, look, there's a way of relating to your own thoughts that doesn't involve any deception. It's not like it involves believing things that aren't true or, you know, the, the contents of your thoughts won't fail to register reality. But the way in which you'll relate to them means that you won't be troubled by the death of your wife. I would think, I would sort of react to that the way I react mm. to the grief pill thing. I would think, okay, I guess this would be a useful tool to have. Like it would be a useful safety valve to be able to take, to, to sort of, when things get overwhelming, cope. But I wouldn't want to inhabit that. I wouldn't want to be in, in relation to other people I love in a way that sort of quarantined thoughts about their death from mm. the kinds of emotional responses that grief involves. So in a way, this does go back to the, the sort of big issue about happiness and living well, and the, the kind of question of whether kind of psychological techniques that sort of are, are sort of self-protective and in a way guarantee, could in principle guarantee you equanimity, how that, that goal relates to the goal of living well in a way that involves responding to reality in the way that one should. And there's really no way to avoid the, there. I think what you said, you said it was sort of a question of ethics and whether it's unethical. There's really no way to avoid these sort of ethical questions about whether we should and how often we should make use of the kind of psychological refuge you're, you're describing. And I think those are the ethical questions that in a way sort of grip me about this sort of psychological mm. story. Yeah. Well, so I think perhaps I've gi given a misleading picture of what remains when you're no longer taken in by thought. And, and again, I have my own questions about how far all of this runs, but it does seem like there is a, some happy asymmetries here which, which are there to be discovered, which is to say that what remains emotionally and attitudinally when you're no longer taken in by thought to the usual degree and more and more as you break that spell more and more, seems to be exactly the pro-social emotions you would want in a wise and enlightened person. It's not like you become totally without affect, totally without connection to other people. And you can sort of understand what this, why this would be the case, because the inward-turning construction of self the self-absorption, the concern about what others think about us, the endless judging of people, the, the continuous capture with our own opinion-making and rumination. And I mean, when you look at what that's doing to you ethically and emotionally and in relationship, it is a kind of running failure of relationship. It's a failure to actually have sufficient free attention to merely pay attention to others, right? And to actually recognize that you love them, that you care about them, that you want them to be happy. I mean, I guess I, I could think of a few moments to illustrate this, but I mean, so like when, when you're speaking to another person and you're, you know, you're, you're having a face-to-face -face conversation, you know, so they're looking into your eyes and you're looking into theirs. What prevents that from being a real you know, deep enjoyment, something like the beatific vision, right? I mean, like, what, what prevents that from being the, among the, the best moments in your life, right? Well, well, many things do, and they're basically all of the character that I just described. They're 
your neurotic concern about how you're perceived, your judgment of them, all of this, you know, certainly most of this is mediated by thought of, you know, one form or another. And there's a kind of collapse of attention, you know, where you're, again, where you're behind your face looking at the other and feeling looked at. I mean, you become an object in the world for others. And there's that Sartrean moment where he describes the, um, this transition. I, mean, I, I didn't get a lot of value out of Sartre, but this is one thing that, I, this is one image that he, he gave us, I think is incredibly useful, which he talked about the condition of um, a voyeur you know, looking at the object of his lust from, you know, outside her window. And kind of the primal circumstance is for that, that mere subject, you know, looking at, at another to suddenly hear someone stepping up behind him, right? And in that, in that moment, the collapse of recognition that you are an object in the world for others, that contraction, right? It is a contraction. I mean, this is something that it is a kind of knot that gets magically tied seemingly in the center of, of experience. And so much of our seeking to feel better in life is an attempt to relax that knot. To re- like, uh, and our peak experiences, when, when we have them, you know, sexually, athletically, you know, aesthetically, the moments when we get out of ourselves, when we suddenly, when there's a kind of, there's no distance between ourselves and experience or ourselves and another person, it's a moment where suddenly we, we seem to no longer feel that cramp of separateness. So again, this is, I, f- I find that I am speaking in anti-sound bites. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but th- this is, so w- what remains when you can actually break this spell is not this cold detachment necessarily. You, you, re- you recognize that there is a, the mind becomes a kind of you know, wellspring of compassion and freedom from inwardness. Like when you're looking at a sunset, not only can you really look at it without any kind of splitting of your attention, there's only the sunset. You're, you're so fully looking at it that you're no longer telling yourself the story of how beautiful the sunset is. There is just a Again, it's fusion is the wrong concept because it's just a, a non-separation. You're no longer breaking yourself off, you know, or constructing yourself in opposition to the world. And so it is with other people, right? So there is a real, like, you, you, you can recognize that, you know, when you give your full attention to the other person and you are no longer, none of your energy is being spent in being concerned about how they perceive you, it's just a much deeper experience of connection. And I, I, I guess I realize, again, I've given you a lot to respond to, but I also want to ask you a question. Have you ever taken psychedelics of any kind? I, t- I took LSD a few times in, in college, so, mm-hmm. and uh, mushrooms a few times, but not, not for a while, I would say. Right. And what, were any of those experiences, I mean, obviously there's a, you can have an extraordinarily positive and extraordinarily negative experiences. Yeah. No, they were great. I mean, yeah, yeah. No, they were, I remember very vividly. One of my favorite moments of this was uh, lying on a field at the back of the college with other people. And we kind of stuck our legs in the air and our hands in the air. Mm. And it was, the phenomenology was exactly as if we were hanging off the bottom of the globe, yeah. like yeah, yeah. hanging into space and yeah. sort of, uh, I, I don't know how it is like, it, like gravity had somehow changed its mode of operation and there were, there were the, we were 
you know, happily, safely glued. But if, it, if, if the glue let go, we would just sort of fall out into the stars. And it was yeah. an amazing sort of experience. Well, I, uh, honestly, you can have that without acid. That really is just a frame shift because it is completely arbitrary to think of it as up rather than down or even on like the side. It's interesting to consider yourself just being on the side of the world, sort of looking out at space, you know, as though through the, the windows of a, a ship. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but anyway, I, I realized I, I hit you with a lot there, but it's not the, co- the, the implication that what would be left is just a cold detachment, you know, just phenomenologically speaking. I mean, that, that's certainly not my experience, and it doesn't seem to be the experience of people who take this very, very far. I mean, there's lots of spontaneous tears of joy, you know, in the offing, and it's not a loss of pro-social emotions, and if anything, it's, it amplifies all of that, but there's a tranquility behind all that because there's a Everything, you know, an eruption of joy or laughter or, you know, anything that's classically positive, nothing lasts, right? Everything has its own half-life. And when you're not clinging to any of that, when you recognize that your well-being doesn't depend on maintaining that, then it all can just flow through. And nothing's blocking it, but nothing's clinging to it either. And that's where there's a sort of deeper notion of, of tranquility or equanimity that is the often stated goal of, you know, these contemplative traditions. I mean, there's a lot in that that, I, that seems really resonates for me. I mean, maybe, maybe I could say, say something about it, something that resonates, something I'm unsure about, and then, and then a kind of connection. I mean, part of what resonates seems right to me is that there's a kind of self-absorption in which sort of one enters into one's own experiences in a way that is deeply damaging. And you get it in sort of Rousseau discussing amour propre versus amour de soi, the sort of concern for self that's about ranking oneself against others, mm. as opposed to a form of self-concern that's sort of purified of that. And you get the same thing in some of the kinds of concerns for failure and success, in which we sort of mortgage our self-worth to various kinds of social perception over which we don't really have any control and that we, it will be emotionally and psychologically healthy to detach from. And so I think there's something really right about that. I guess that the, the, well, let me say the reservation and then the connection. I mean, the, the reservation, it has to do again with this thought that there are aspects of grief that have this self-related feature that, that you know, questions about my well-being, I'll never see her again, where I'm entering into the, the sort of object of, of what I'm grieving. And there it's the kind of loss of a relationship. And it's not just about me, but it does involve me. Whereas I think there is an aspect of grief that is wholly other regarding, that it has nothing to do mm. with my well-being or my relationship to, to my mother or whether I'll see my mother again, all of those being things that maybe I could healthily sort of adjust to, but has to do sort of purely with a, a kind of acknowledgement of what's happening to her. And they, then uh, there, I think, that is where the sort of the rubber of this sort of ethical question hits the road of exactly what we owe to other people in our emotional responses to what's happening to them entirely independently of our relationship with them or how it exactly it relates to our well-being and that that's the part of this that still that seems mm. to me sort of sort of more intractable i mean there is a connection something some of what you said connects with something that i do think is is deeply important and deeply right and that it, it connects to a kind of 
more modest use of a certain kind of meditation technique that I'm really sympathetic to that I think is consistent with, but but doesn't go as far as, uh, or doesn't go in the same direction as some of what you find in mindfulness meditation, which has to do with sort of presence in the moment. And so one kind of distinction I draw here, and that, well, if we, you know, we, we can connect this back to midlife crises or not, I think it's of more general application, but it, it has to do with the contrast between what I call telic activities and atelic activities. So mm -hmm. it's from the Greek word telos for end, and the jargon is from linguistics, where telic verbs are ones that sort of incorporate an end state. So it might be recording this interview. There's a kind of end point at which it's done. And then atelic verbs and atelic activities are ones that don't have an endpoint built in in the same way. So it might just be talking about grief, which is something that you can stop doing. We eventually will stop doing, but it, it doesn't have, as it were, a kind of terminal point built into it. And I think one kind of evaluative distortion we're subject to that meditation of a certain kind can help to liberate us from has to do with an excessive investment in telic activities or the kinds of things we call projects. And part of why that's troubling connects with things that you were saying about sort of being in the moment, sort of experiencing what's happening now in a way that is not mortgaged to sort of aspects of the world independent of that. So when you're engaged in a project like you want to get married or you want to have kids, you're aiming at something that is always in the future. So there's the frustration of not being there yet. And then as soon as you achieve it, it's over and in the past. And what's more, your sort of way of engaging with projects, with telic activities, is to try and finish them. So you're taking this thing that's a source of meaning, and you're trying to sort of expunge it from your life. And there's something sort of self-undermining about that. And it's not that projects don't matter. Sometimes it's important to achieve things. But an excessive investment in, in them, and this is the kind of thing that was happening to me in my sort of midlife phase of being obsessed with my academic career. An excessive investment in them can sort of obscure the value of atelic activities. So just instead of having kids, parenting, the ongoing activity, or instead of you know, getting married, being in a relationship, spending time with someone you love, where these atelic activities don't have this sort of terminal structure where satisfaction is always deferred to the future or mm. archived in the past. And they don't have the feature that engaging with them is somehow extinguishing them. They're sort of realized in the present as much as they ever can be realized. And I think it's not that you've got to choose one or the other. Like we're, we're always doing both. So right now, you're recording this, this conversation, and we're talking about grief. And one of those is a telic project that will end, and hopefully this, <laughs> this conversation will eventually air and so on. But there's also the atelic activity. And it's not that the finishing and recording and airing doesn't matter, but you'd be really missing something. We would be really missing something if we didn't see that there was a certain kind of value in just reflecting on and thinking about these difficult problems about human life, independent of any particular end product that that produces. And so I think that's a kind of value we're liable to miss for sort of partly cultural reasons, partly reasons that have to do with stage of life and the kind of shape that our careers often take. And that's something that I, I think one of the kinds of experiences you describe coming out of mindfulness meditation that, that I think I'm, I'm, I sort of have myself mm. is a kind of ability to detach from where things are going or exactly what this is going to produce to be able to appreciate 
you know, it might just be the simple activity of breathing or sitting or listening. And then to try to sort of take that orientation towards the atelic, the, the sort of process into other aspects of my life in a way that that I do find sort of anxiety reducing, that, mm. that it somehow it helps me to see that exactly how things turn out, even if it matters, is not the only thing that matters. And that there's something else going on that has value. And that, yeah, that, that's, uh, you know, it's not capturing all or, or quite what, what you were describing, but it's, I think, consistent with some of what comes out of the tradition that you're, you're you know, learning from and coming out of. And that I really do think is, is sort of deeply meaningful and, and has a lot of applications. I mean, I think this sort of way of reorienting ourselves is relevant not only to the sense of hollowness in the sort of relentless pursuit of projects that we often fall into in our lives, but also into our relationship to success and failure, the way in which we sort of, in telic activities or projects, are sort of mortgaging ourselves to an outcome in a way that we're not doing when we sort of recognize value in the process of our activities, these atelic activities. And that, that insight, I think, is very, has been very helpful mm. to me. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one facet to this, that if you enter fully, you basically see the entire jewel. I mean, it, just, it captures everything we've been talking about in a, I think, probably a, a less mystical sounding way. I mean, like this is really where the rubber meets the road for most people. And, and this is a, like, this distinction between just getting things done, right? From going from one project to the next, you know, these telic engagements with life. And I'm doing this because, and actually enjoying the process for itself. And those, obviously, those two things are compatible, as you say. I mean, you can you know, we're, we know we're recording this podcast and it, we have a purpose in doing so, but we can actually enjoy this moment of the conversation for its own sake. And so insofar as one's life becomes more and more a, a harmony between those two, you know, strands of concern, even if you're, wor the distinction between work and play begins to break down. I mean, you're doing what you are happy to be doing, whether it's work or play, and more and more if you can live that way with your attention. And in play, you know, virtually everyone recognizes how absurd it would be to be doing something merely to get it over with, right? I mean, nobody plays right. a game of yeah. tennis just so they can get to that moment when they're done playing tennis. I mean, the only, the only way you would do that is if you're, someone's forcing you to play tennis and you, you know, like, well, this has actually has happened with, in the case of uh, both of my daughters, neither of whom liked taking tennis lessons. So that didn't last long. But, you know, yeah, so you, there you could see a girl on a tennis court who was really playing tennis only to get it over with. And that's precisely what it is not to be enjoying uh, the game of tennis. So the question is, how can we make more and more of our lives resemble, you know, play or I mean, maybe play, maybe the concept of play doesn't capture everything that's possible here, but something that, that we're doing for the intrinsic enjoyment of the doing of it as opposed to having some other motive that purposes us toward just getting it done. All the while knowing that in every moment, retrospectively, there are things we will want to have gotten done. And there's even a, another layer of gratification that comes in having gotten them done, right? So it's not that that's not true. It's not that you can't ever feel satisfied 
with a good day's work for all the things you got done, but you really don't want to miss the satisfaction that's available in actually doing the work that you really want to do and enjoy to do. That seems totally right to me. I mean, it's not always, but very often, I think it's true that when you're engaged in a telic activity, you're trying to complete something, it's worth asking, okay, what are the atelic activities that I'm doing at the same time? Like, what, what is the process of this? And asking, is there some value in the process? Because if you miss it, it's going to be like being forced to play that tennis game. But if it's there, it's important to sort of pay attention to it and access it. And I think one way in which, in which you can sort of amplify how much of your life is in this way atelic, it's not just about projects, is about changing your relation to projects. And I think this, this is something that, that you alluded to. So it's not just that you can change your relationship to them at the time you're engaging with them in order to find value in the process. It's also that this sense that the telic activity is over when you're done with it. Well, that's true, but there are various sort of atelic activities that can piggyback on the telic activity. So the activity of thinking back on things you've done with satisfaction and thinking, Hmm. I'm really glad I did that. You're dependent on this telic activity project you completed. But the activity of thinking about it, reflecting about it, mulling it over is an atelic activity. Again, there's no sort of particular endpoint at which you're like, well, that's all the mulling there is to do. You can always, you know, mull it over again indefinitely. And so that's a way of sort of refusing to let the projects in your life be mere projects, not only at the time, but retrospectively. And in fact, I think this sort of, there's the kind of psychological research on therapy that focuses on, you know, what are you grateful for? What is, what is good in your life? often sort of exactly exploits that kind of shift of taking things that might seem to be over and done with and finding ways to leverage them into new forms of uh, new ways of relating to your own life in which its temporal structure is sort of to some extent under your control. It's something you can reframe Mm -hmm. in ways that fight against the the sort of relentless sequential task-driven structure of project after project, telic activity after telic activity. And yeah, I, I, think, I think there were also kind of social things that, that would make a difference. But insofar as we're, we're sort of on our own fighting to make the most of our lives, I think that the, the tactics you're, you're talking about have a, a real power there. Yeah, re- reframing has a, a lot of power, I mean, just to a fairly astounding degree. I mean, this is actually another thing I got from existentialism. I mean, this is something that is perhaps not the only source of this insight, but it, this was kind of a central thesis there, which is that you're always in a position to reframe the past. I mean, the, the present value of the, of the past is in some sense always up for grabs and amenable to you just telling yourself a better story about what it meant and, or, you know, and what it means. And the world will impose certain stories on you. I mean, people will tell you, you know, what they think about your recent or distant failures, but you're always free to decide that those failures mean something else to you, right? And you know, this is not a counsel of, of mere delusion. It's just you are in a position to decide, and this, is, this actually relates to this distinction between merely being happy and just seizing upon pleasant emotions and living well, there's certainly a conception of both in the moment and retrospectively of failure and struggle and classically negative, stressful experience 
that can be positive and empowering. I mean, we, we know that reframing matters, or we, we know that the cognitive frame matters in the moment for more or less everything. The example I often give here is the physical sensory experience of a really intense workout, right? Well, that if you just take the raw physiology of it, it feels like a medical emergency. It's just not a good experience. And if it were happening to you some other way, if you woke up in the middle of the night and you felt the way you feel in the gym trying for a personal best in, in the deadlift, right, you would, you know, you would call an ambulance, right, and you'd, you'd be wise to, and you'd be terrified, right? But the same set of sensations in the gym with the right cognitive frame is, I mean, that could be the best experience you have all day. And yet, if you really were going to inventory your, your consciousness in each moment along the way, you'd have to recognize, okay, this is pretty fucking unpleasant what's happening here, but it's in the context of a very life-affirming, exciting project, and you feel great afterwards. And the totality of that experience is, is what you're after. But, you know, we're always in a position to do that with even you know, really bad things in life. And, and we find that people naturally do it. I mean, when you ask people, well, you know, what, what do you regret, you know, or like, what would you change about your past? You know, in my experience, they're pretty slow to come up with, a, with you know, even the fairly bad things that, that happen to them as, you know, candidates for change, because immediately, the, the moment you begin pulling at the threads of the past, you begin to th- think about, the counterfactuals, and you think, well, would, would I actually be, you know, w- would I be able to be really helpful to people the way I am now if I hadn't suffered that particular trauma or that particular emergency, as terrible as it was at the time? So, I, I mean, I, you know, obviously there are things that if you could change them, knowing that all of the things would stay in place or even get better, well, then probably you would build that time machine and uh, improve things. But you know, by default, we seem to be pretty good at, you know, or many of us seem to be pretty good at, at finding a silver lining even in, in very difficult things. Yeah, I think a lot of sort of our relationship to the past has to do with not just what happened, but as you say, sort of how we think about its relation to the present. So one way to sort of bring that out in, in relation to the phenomenon you're just describing is just to think that, you know, given the butterfly effect and sort of the way in which the future evolves chaotically, almost everything that's good in your life wouldn't have happened had your life gone in some relatively minor way differently on July the 3rd, you know, 1997. Like the, the consequences of any minor change would sort of ramify massively over time. And so there's a way in which we, we naturally and justifiably fall into a kind of ambivalence about past mistakes and misfortunes and failures, where we look back and think, well, at the time, I was right to deplore that or wrong to do that. And I, my attitude towards it should have been negative. But now that I look back with the benefit of hindsight, I have to take into account that I have no idea how the world would have gone otherwise. And even if I'm pretty sure it would, on the whole, maybe have gone better, it would have gone unknowably differently. And the way in which I think mm. our, our emotional sort of attachments work, and again, I think this is perfectly justifiable, is I'm not just concerned to live well, I have attachment to all the particular good things in my life. And even if someone said to me, well, I could give you a different life, and I promise you it will be better, it would just be wildly different. 
and it will be a life in which you don't know any of the people you currently know, and you're married to someone else, and you don't have that kid, and you got, but it's going to be, I promise you that even by your standards, it will be better. Mm. It, that's not a trade people are prone to make. And I don't think that's a, a kind of mistake. It's to do with the fact that even if at the time, not knowing the future, I might have been willing and maybe should have made that trade for the, the unknown better. Once, you're, once you know all the ways in which your life is good, even if on balance it's not as good as some alternative, there's a kind of attachment to the particulars and a kind of emotional response to the particular ways in which life has been satisfying, even as it's also been very difficult, that sort of counterbalances even the, the sort of abstract cartoon of some alternative life that might have been better. And I think that that is a kind of natural psychological phenomenon that I don't think involves any irrationality. I mean, you get another case where you get, I think you can really make progress in thinking about the past and missing out by a kind of reframing is in relation to the way in which we have a kind of existential FOMO. We have this, we almost all of us have mm. this sense that there are so many things in life we wanted to do, and we've only at best done some of them. Like we, I never got to be a poet, which I once wanted to be. I never got to be a medical doctor, which I once wanted to be. There's all these things I'll never do, I don't think. And you know, there are many more. And for most of us, life is like that. In virtue of just having a particular path, there's all kinds of good things that it excludes. And that can seem like a frustration. It can seem like a negative thing. But there's a kind of reframing that I think is very helpful here, which is to think about what that reflects and what it would be like to experience life without that. So what it reflects is value pluralism, the fact that there are many different kinds of valuable things that don't compensate for each other. It's not like, even if you made the right choice, it's not like choosing $100 rather than 50 where there's nothing to regret. Being a philosopher rather than a poet, maybe it was the right choice, but nevertheless, there's all kinds of things that my life might have had in it that it will not have in it, and they're uncompensated losses. And that's a function of value pluralism. Okay, so that's in a certain way regrettable, but what would it be like if we didn't have that plurality of values or the capacity to respond to it? Like the only way you could miss out on existential FOMO, miss, miss out on missing out, would be if either the world was completely evaluatively homogenous, like that this wasn't this diversity mm. of good things, or you yourself were just completely monomaniacal and completely incapable of appreciating a diversity of things. And no one wants that. No one wants to be so emotionally narrow or to live in a world so impoverished that there aren't a plurality of things worth wanting. In fact, it's a glorious thing that the world contains so many more good things than any one life can encompass. And that way of sort mm. of reframing what's going on in existential FOMO, again, I, it's just a reframing of the reality, but I find it very helpful to think, yeah, I do miss those things and it's sad that I can't have them, but I don't wish I didn't miss out. I don't regret the fact that I have these regrets. That's part of a way the world is that I cherish and, and wouldn't want to, to wish away. Mm. Yeah, I, I feel that more or less on an hourly basis with respect to books that I want to read. I mean, because I, I have this sort of tyranny of my own bookshelves where I, I can see the books that I will not live long enough to read, right? Because I just have, I happen to have thousands of books. I'm, I'm just a, a lunatic with respect to, to books. And, you know, people now send me books for free because of this podcast, right? So that, that's been going on for years. So like, there's just effectively an infinite number of books 
that I would be interested to read, would enjoy reading. And the negative side of that, it, it can feel like a problem, a strange source of deprivation, right? In light of my mortality, in light of the fact that I can very easily do the math, you know, I, I can see how many books I'm tending to read a year and then extrapolate. And it's just there's not that many books that I'm going to get to in, in the next, uh, even, even over the course of a, the longest plausible life. And as chance would have it, I basically, I own that many books already, yeah. right? Because of, because of uh, just what I've been doing. So, you know, I, I look at those shelves and, you know, yes, your, your reframing totally works. Would I want to live in a world where there were only, you know, 700 books that are worth reading? And, you know, I'm going to make my way through all of them? Or am I better off in a world where there are really, you know, compared to the span of my life, a functionally infinite number of good books that I wish I could read, but never will? The latter universe is, is a much more interesting place to be. And it, so, yeah, I, I find that reframing really works. And it's uh, you know, yet another useful instance of just using a concept like that to solve a problem that you really didn't have in the first place. Right, right. No, I, I'm in the same position with respect to books. I, the two things that I've sort of started doing recently, which, are, which, which one more practical, one more theoretical have kind of helped. One is I used to be someone who had the rule that once I'd started reading a book, I yeah. had to finish it. Yeah. And that rule is, that rule is gone. Rule. That rule yeah. is gone. Yeah. That's just not yeah. a, that's, that's a, a young person's rule. But the, the other more theoretical thing is I find a certain kind of solace in not knowing which. Like I think for any book, I think, well, I might read it. I don't know if I knew which books I was going to read. If, if it, as it were, I knew that I'm probably going to read a few more thousand books and that's it. And mm -hmm. I knew which ones. I think I'd be really strict. I'd be like, oh my God, I'm never going to, I now know the books I'll never read. And I would feel like the, the list would right, have a kind of right. punitive force for me. So I, there's a certain kind of, it's, it's only partly self-delusive. I think there's just some, some genuine solace in thinking, yes, but nothing is ruled out. At this point, every book on that shelf you could read. You, you don't yet yeah. know what you're missing. And I think, as it were, not knowing what you're, gonna, what you're missing is a, a genuine consolation. I think, I think it's when you know what you're missing, and the more you know about it, the harder it is to, to emotionally cope with the fact that you're going to miss out on those things. There's a fascinating thought experiment you cite in your book, Midlife, one of Derek Parfitt's. Uh, who I, if ever there were a person, I, I, I think there's probably no one I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I can think of no one who was such a font of fascinating thought experiments. I mean, he was just a thought experiment factory. Uh, it's almost like a person from another planet came down here and decided to put the, the lens of brilliant thought experiments over the question of what people are doing here. I just find Reasons and Persons to be just a, an astounding book. Discuss the the thought experiment you referenced there with respect to the question of future bias, because it, it is just a strange thing to think about. Ah, right. So th this is the, 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 the case of future bias is the, the thought experiment where we imagine waking up in hospital, not knowing what day of the week it is. And the, the, this is a, you know, you got to worry about this hospital, but you know, it's a thought experiment. So there are yeah. no, no, <laughs> No legal repercussions, but the, the, the nurse comes over and looks at your chart and says, oh, 
I'm not sure which chart is yours. I've got two mixed up. Either you're someone who had a very painful operation yesterday, which you, 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 you're not going to remember because they, they give you drugs to make sure it's all, you, you know, it's painful at the time. You're not anesthetized, but afterwards they wipe your memory. And it lasted four agonizing hours. That happened to one of these patients. The other patient is having a, an operation this afternoon. It's only going to last two hours. Again, no anesthetic, very painful, memory wipe afterwards. I'm actually not sure which one of the two you are. And the point of the thought experiment is to illustrate the idea that most of us think, okay, I really, really hope I'm the first guy. I really hope I had four hours of agony yesterday all forgotten, and I do not have two hours of agony impending. And what's striking about that is just that the, the looking at the life overall, the life of the first guy has other things being equal, two more hours of unanesthetized, agonizing surgery in it. But our reaction to and our sort of practical reasoning about whether to go towards or avoid certain kinds of pleasures and pains suggests that we dramatically discount past pleasures and pains. And we dramatic, well, at least pains in this case, and we give mm-hmm. much more weight to future pains. So we're not temporally neutral. And we seem to be, as a psychological matter, and again, there's kind of questions now about the rationality of this, we seem to be future biased. And this is, you know, two ways in which to bring out why this is important and or puzzling. One way in which it's important is something similar seems to be true of pleasure. So if you're told you went to a wild party yesterday, you don't remember it, it lasted four hours and was total bliss, or you're going to a party later, it's going to be total bliss, you're going to have a great time for two hours, you just won't remember afterwards. Most of us would similarly think, well, I want to have a two hours of total joy this afternoon. I'd rather Mm -hmm. take less pleasure than more. And that's relevant to questions about sort of how we feel about death. So there's a famous argument in Epicurus and Lucretius, these ancient Greek and Roman philosophers, that we shouldn't, that death, the post-mortem non-existence is just the same as prenatal non-existence. And since we don't mourn prenatal non-existence, we shouldn't mourn the fact that we're going to die, assuming we don't exist afterwards, and then experience nothing. And this future bias phenomenon, this sort of temporal asymmetry in our reaction to pleasures, suggests that if future bias of this kind is rational, that's not a good argument. Because one way to put it is that the pleasures that prenatal non-existence that deprives you of are like the the mm-hmm. party yesterday. Who cares? The pleasures that death will deprive you of, assuming life is going okay, are like the party this afternoon. That's a very big deal. And so future bias, if it's rational, would ex- help to explain why it's rational to care more about post-mortem non-existence than prenatal non-existence. And you know, unfortunately, it would tend to undermine this Epicurean Lucretian argument that we shouldn't sort of mm. be afraid of death. I mean, the, the, the way in which it's puzzling is that there's something sort of very temporally unstable about the decision-making mm-hmm. of people who are future biased. And, and maybe this is perfectly rational, but it's a little bit odd that if you imagine going into the hospital before the surgeries happen, and you're told, we can either do the four-hour surgery tomorrow or the two-hour surgery the day after, if you're mm-hmm. like me, you'd say, okay, well, I'll have the two-hour surgery. I don't mind waiting a day. But the next morning when I wake up, I'm going to think, 
oh my God, I really, really hope that I had the four-hour surgery yesterday. And when I see my right, own right. signature on the contract saying, I hereby commit to the, to the two-hour surgery, I'm going to think, why did I do that? <laughs> I really, really wish I hadn't. So you do get this puzzling mm. phenomenon that if you're future biased in this way, you, you will predictably regret situations that you ex- knew that your decision making was going to put you in. Now, maybe that's just how it is rationally for beings like us who live forward in time. But it's certainly a kind of odd feature of, of the relationship to our decisions that we have when we're future biased in the way that most of us are. Mm. Yeah, it, it seems like in part it could be an artifact of just the time when the question is posed, right? And it, it, it might kind of interact with um, you know, the, the distinction that comes from Danny Kahneman between the, the experiencing self and the, and the remembering self, too. I mean, there's like there's just two different places where we can take the temperature of, of our well-being, and they seem difficult to, to reconcile. But it, yeah, it does seem, when viewed from the previous week, you know, and you're, you're now contemplating a four-hour surgery on Monday or a two-hour surgery on Tuesday, it, just seem, it does seem starkly irrational to not just own the, the implications for, for the, the global implications for your life, which is it would be better to have two hours less torture in the end. But yeah, so I'm just wondering if it's, in fact, just a construction of sampling, you know, opinion sampling at the wrong time? In a way, the answer might be yes, but w- what is the right time? So we've got to sort of have this question about, there's this sort of shift in opinions between what my preferences are beforehand and what my preferences are in the middle. And then afterwards, my preferences will shift again. So mm-hmm. a- afterwards, I'll, I'll think, you know, beforehand, I think, give me the two hours one day later. In the middle, between the two days, I think, God, I hope I had the four hours yesterday. Afterwards, I look back and if I care at all, I'd think, well, I guess, why wouldn't I rather have had the two hours? Right. And the, the, the challenge is to try to figure out some kind of, either to say, no, all of those re- preferences are rational. It's just rational for one's preferences to evolve over time in that way. Or to find a, a way to justify the thought that one of those perspectives is, as it were, the right perspective from which to form preferences about your whole life. And there might be an argument for that. I mean, it might be that we can convince ourselves that the perspective in between is somehow distorted, but it's not immediately obvious why any one of them would be sort of more problematic. In a way, you might think, in advance, if you're making decisions for your later self, shouldn't we think that your later self is going to be more authoritative about what those decisions ought to be? So we should mistrust the kinds of decisions you would make earlier when you're sort of not in the moment yourself. So why would we think that your earlier decision is somehow more rationally justified than the the preference you form when you're you know actually going through the experience. So I think there's something it's just kind of a very puzzling normative sort of ethical question about which of those perspectives to prioritize or whether and, and this is sort of my instinct is to say no maybe it's just there are all reasonable preferences and it's reasonable for people's preferences to evolve over time in a way that predictably generates regret. So the idea mm. that a rational person will go through life without regret, provided that they don't meet any surprises. Maybe that's just not true. In fact, the way rational decision-making works, sometimes you commit yourself to doing things that you know you'll later regret, and it's some consolation that you made the right decision at the time, but 
the right decision at the time is one thing, and what you should now wish you mm. had done is something else. And that's something that came up in our earlier conversations. Like part of the idea that we can kind of confront the past by reframing it involves saying we have to pull apart these two questions. One question is, what should I have felt at the time? Should I have felt like this was a bad decision? Was this a mistake? Was it a, a terrible thing to happen to me? But that's just a different question from later. Should mm -hmm. I wish it hadn't happened? Should I wish I hadn't made that decision? And in those earlier cases, the thought was, no, that they can come apart. We can sometimes look back on things that at the time were mistakes, misfortunes, failures, and quite reasonably think, I don't really regret it now because I'm attached to the actual way my life has gone. So maybe this future bias case is another instance of that. It's an instance where what you should do at one time and how you should feel about it later just come apart. And that's perfectly reasonable. There's not, there's not a malfunction here, here at all. Well, one thing that's, that the thought experiment is leveraging is the significance of having a intense experience that leaves no residue, right? That you have no memory of this experience. Right. And, and so right. then there is something strange about that notion, and it, but it, it actually does relate to many of the things we've been talking about. Because, because the way we, like, what does it mean for experience to matter in the future? Well, it has to change something about us. And in the clearest case, we have to be able to remember it we have to be disposed to remember it. it has to kind of revisit us and if it doesn't one could you know well wonder what's the significance of of anything really you know and it's I mean, like so to come up with a thought experiment on the fly related to parfits here you can imagine what's the difference between general anesthetic being you know true anesthesia, which is to say, you're, you know, you are not conscious of any of the suffering entailed by the surgery, or just a paralytic drug followed by an amnesic drug, right? So you're paralyzed, you're tortured for two hours, but then we give you a drug so you remember none of it, and there's, there really is no residue. There's no, you know, negative learning even in your spinal cord, right? There's just, you're not, you're not, none the worse for wear, but it is true to say that you were tortured for two hours. People have had this experience. There's, you know, an, what's called anesthesia arousal, right? There are people who wake up paralyzed in the middle of a of a surgery, and that cannot be fun. Uh, unfortunately, they sometimes remember something about that, and that's why we know this happens. But the question is, is it rational to have a very strong preference for one over the other? And uh, how much would you pay to have the real general anesthesia and not the the fake one? If on Thursday you'll be precisely the same person having no memory of what happened earlier in the week. And it is interesting to consider just what is the, what matters if there is no residue? And there's some of that there, and there's some of that creeping into many of the other things we've talked about, because again, the common residue for so much of life is for us to be thinking about our past you know, and thinking it and, and rehearsing it and telling yourself the story of who we are in light of it. And when you cease to do that more and more, you're free of the bad things in the past that you would otherwise brood about, and you're, you're open to both good and bad things in the present. But I don't know, I don't have an answer there. It's just, it is interesting to consider how much it <laughs> how rational is it to prefer, what would you be willing to sacrifice to not have two hours 
of misery that we, you know we stipulate in advance you will never remember it's funny that i mean this is really interesting i i i wonder if there's an asymmetry here between pain and pleasure so when i think about the pain case i think the difference between genuine anesthetic and paralytic mm. plus amnesia drug i think i would pay quite a lot not to go through this mm. even if i don't remember it afterwards when i think about pleasure it's much less clear because i think so much of what matters about pleasant experiences mm. this connects back to what we talked about earlier involves the mark they make in your life like in the moment that's good but if you don't remember it afterwards it's not really giving any meaning to your life you the meaning of it is lost and so again i think it suggests there's a kind of asymmetry here that relates to this relationship between happiness as a kind of subjective state of mood or feeling and living well because i think if you have positive feelings that's always you know it's something good about that but whether they make a difference to how well your life is going depends a lot on what the positive feelings are about and how they fit into the the sort of meaningfulness of your life whereas when it comes to pain i think yeah pain's just bad like it it's i mean there are cases where the pain contributes to something of meaning like arguably the case of grief is, is sort of one we sort of went back and forth on a lot that's mm -hmm. a case where you sort of think well maybe this kind of pain is actually contributing to a a life well lived but if you think you know the pain of surgery it's not in that category and it just seems unequivocally bad whereas if you think a party that you go to where you experience pleasure but you don't actually get to remember any of the people you interacted with or any of the relationships that were built or anything you did there is just a massive diminution in the contribution of that to having a good life so that it may not be worth nothing but it doesn't seem to really provide us with the, the sort of enduring significance that we're hoping for and so again it's that certainly suggests to me that mere momentary pleasure is not especially significant i mean the, the other association i have here is with so i i talk about this in a chapter of, of life is hard i have a chronic pain condition and one of the things about chronic pain that i think is very interesting i mean i sort of get a certain kind of solace from just thinking through why it's bad and one of the ways in which it's bad has to do with the harms of expectation and memory like the, the hardest things about chronic pain and i think i'm not unusual in this this is something that it that sort of runs through philosophical and psychological and memoir reflections on chronic pain has to do with the way in which as it endures you find yourself unable to forecast to a future free of pain or even to really remember or reaccess in imagination mm. the condition of being pain free those yeah. things are deeply deeply challenging to living well the momentary experience of pain eh if it was just as it were that i had an endless sequence of totally self-contained atomized pains i would think well that's bad but it would be nothing like the experience of chronic pain it would it would not have any of the that so there i think that the sort of forecast aspect and the memory aspect are hugely important there's this kind of dorky pop culture reference there's a quote from you know the the kimmy schmidt sitcom where you know she has escaped from being held captive for however long 15 years or something and she says you can stand anything for 10 seconds i think there's mm. something really right about that like if you could sort of compartmentalize experiences of say physical suffering into very sort of time limited units like for me it's more like think of it day at a time rather than 10 seconds at a time mm -hmm. then 
you sort of deprive it of its power to sort of govern your relationship to your enduring, ongoing, persisting life. And there is something quite powerful about that, which again, I think connects back with some of the ways in which mindfulness meditation can sort of alter your relationship to time in ways that liberate you from, at least partly from, certain kinds of, of suffering. And that, that's something else that I think sort of is suggested by this thought experiment where we sort of detach the momentary experience of pain from its typical effects on memory and anticipation. And it really, you know, there, there it does suggest, I think, that it changes its, its significance for us. Yeah, well, that, this is yet another case where mindfulness presents a kind of escape valve for suffering, which is to say that if you can really be with this next moment of pain or, you know, unpleasant experience, you can recognize that most of the suffering, if not all of the suffering, I mean, again, I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic as to how deep this reaches, but insofar as there really is daylight between pain and suffering, and we can live in that daylight, the relief is to be found here, which is so much of our suffering is born of the resistance to the suffering we imagine is coming in the future. So the thought, I can't bear another moment of this, is never strictly true because you've always borne that present moment of it already, right? And if you can just relax your resistance to the unpleasantness and forget about the future, I mean, truly forget about it and just be with this next moment, you know, it's possible to discover that, you know, that so much of the painfulness of pain or the suffering of pain is in our resistance to just merely feeling it. And again, there's, you know, there's, there are reframings, as I said, around exercise, etc. Again, I'm ag agnostic as to ha whether this is possible with the worst possible pains, right? I don't, you know, I'm not sure what it would be like to have a mind that can find equanimity regardless of, of any possible sensory experience. But it is certainly possible to just recognize that you've already born, you know, fully born this moment of unpleasantness. And as you referenced, I mean, you can be with anything of that sort for this next moment. I'm, I have my own version of this, which is tinnitus, right? It's not pain, but it's this you know, unpleasant sound that right. switched on for me 17 years ago. And is, you know, I have not gotten a moment of silence since. And I really, I really do love silence and uh, it's gone. But um, the, the question is, why need the unpleasantness of this sound deliver suffering if I can always just hear it for another moment? And, you know, it's in this moment, it really is fine, even though, you know, if my neighbor had a machine in their yard that was producing this sound, my entire life would be devoted to figuring out how to silence that machine, right? You know, it would just, uh -huh. it, it would be... It would be an absolute social emergency. Yeah. To you know, which uh, <laughs> which if if not not rectified, uh, you know, thoughts of murder would soon be coming. But it, it is true that it can always just be born another moment. And yeah, I mean, that's insofar as mindfulness is a a remedy for the suffering of pain or anything else unpleasant. It it, it does fall out there just in the recognition that consciousness is already just the condition in which this thing is arising and it's simply arising and resistance to its arising is yet another thing that is being unpleasantly added to the circumstance and it 
it need not be, you know, if only for this next moment. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, part of what is it's sort of interesting to me about the experience is the thought that if this was happening for 10 minutes, I'd just get on with things. So I just wouldn't right. give it a second thought. And it is just happening for 10 minutes. It's also happening for the next 10 minutes and the next 10 minutes and the next 10 minutes. But if I could experience it as just a lot of 10 minutes, it would not have the kind of, it, it is the, the anticipatory dread and also the retrospective sort of relationship to my memory of my own experience. That's where the, the real difficulties lie. So this is a case where I really think the kind of power of mindfulness meditation is very great to at least partly address this kind of suffering and sort of limit its power. And so, yeah, I, I, I think that that's a feature of the, our relationship to certain kinds of pain or irritation like tinnitus that I think suggests that, you know, amnesia or not changing our relationship to the temporality of pain really might change whether it has significance for us and what kind of significance it has. Mm. Do you ever fall into the semi-delusional state of marveling that everyone else doesn't also have a chronic pain condition? I mean, do you ever, does yeah. it ever just seem weird to you? Like, how is it that people aren't just feeling this sort of thing all the time? I have two versions of that. One is looking at people and occasionally feeling this sort of deep envy at my imagination that they're not in pain, just thinking, they don't know how lucky they are. They don't know what they've got. But the, the other version of it that I think is a kind of illusion that I think is quite, I find it helpful to, to sort of undermine is actually, so my pain sort of fluctuates. It's sometimes bad, sometimes not so bad. And what I find is that, you know, actually when it goes away or is sort of negligible for a while, I'm completely unable to appreciate that. Mm. It's, like, it's like trying to, you know, turn on the lights to see the dark or something, you know, you, but as soon as I'm not, the pain is not disrupting my relationship to experience, my body just goes back to its transparent state. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, there's nothing, I don't feel anything particularly positive about it. It, it, it. The absence of it just means it's, the experience is gone. So there's a way in which I think, strangely enough, being pain-free, I'm, I'm vastly overestimating how much satisfaction I would get out of that. I, mm -hmm. I would take it completely for granted. And I, so I have this, every time I have a cold, I have the same, a mini version of the same thing where I think having a cold is a huge pain. Every day I don't have a cold. I should yeah. just feel great that yeah. I can breathe freely. Yeah. But I don't feel great when I don't have a cold. I, don't, yeah. I completely fail to appreciate it. And so I, I think there's, there's a kind of illusion in pain of how great your life would be or, or, or just how much you would be able to appreciate its absence. And I don't think, I think appreciating it is a very brief and, and sort of diaphanous thing. Well, that's where the Stoics offer some methodology, just continually reflecting on that kind of negative visualization where you, you recognize how much worse things could be and kind of price in the gratitude you would feel to be, or you should feel to be relieved of those worse things that aren't happening now. I find those reflections interesting and helpful. But um, Kieran, I, I realize we are uh, around two hours, and the truth is we've barely covered either of your books, the, the, the book I read and the book I haven't read. So we'll have to talk uh, more in the future. And um, I'm also reminded that you're, you're planning to produce a, a series on, on something in this vein for Waking Up, right? Is that, is that happening? That's right. Yeah. So it's the tentative title, I think, it's, is Philosophy for Troubled Times. And it draws mm -hmm. on, on both books. And basically, it's an attempt to apply philosophical reflection to some of the hardships of life. So regret, some of the things we talked about, like regret or missing out, 
and also things we haven't talked so much about, like loneliness. Uh, mm. We talked a bit about failure, and also things in the wider world, like our relationship to the injustice of the world around us, and how we can properly respond to that without being overwhelmed by it. Which is something I think a lot of people, sort of from day to day, watching the Twitter feed, uh, you know, doom scrolling, mm. that they, they're faced with this sort of challenge of how to how to not just block it out because that seems immoral but also not to just feel absolutely you know, buried by it. And so I try to sort of wend a path through these kinds of, of challenges that we face in, in life using philosophical ideas from the history of philosophy, but also from some of my own work in philosophy and drawing on, on material from both of the books. Oh, fantastic. Well, I look forward to that and uh, to future conversations. So again, thanks for your time, Kieran. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you.